don't get me wrong, it's nice when people win stuff. But I think it's the moments of struggle, making the connections. In in my first season with the mountain bikers, I, I refer to them quite a lot because they, they've really shaped a lot of what I do in, in recent years. You know, going down for a training session and, and Rach just said, can we go for a ride on our bikes? I was like, oh, okay. And we went for a ride for an hour around the, and chatted and got loads of stuff sorted out. And that was the training session. So someone having the confidence and the trust in you to have that conversation that seemed like a throwaway conversation, but you know that, that's a bit of a highlight. And, and I guess just knowing I've been a small part in people's achievements. Hello and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. I'm passionate about exploring the experiences, concepts and insights from the world of performance. And in each episode, I'll be speaking to people who've been there and done it, research aspects of performance in real depth or have supported others to aspire. It's my hope that you'll find some interesting ideas here to develop your philosophies, work and maybe how you live your life. And if you're enjoying these discussions and fancy supporting us, then it'd be amazing if you could leave an honest review on iTunes. It helps us reach more people and shares the messages further. Equally, whatever platform you're listening on, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube or Radio Public, then do press subscribe. This episode's guest is Nick Grantham, Performance Enhancement Specialist and Consultant. Nick and I go way back to the mid-1990s and have worked alongside each other in the sphere of sports performance during that time. Now, Nick has worked with a range of elite teams, netball, gymnastics, basketball, premiership football, downhill mountain biking, to name a few. And Nick is also a leading light in taking an active role in developing content and advice for aspiring professionals. And we've been increasingly aware that we share this as a motivation and a driver. So it was a great conversation where we found that there was some real overlap in our thoughts and perspectives. But as expected, whenever I speak to Nick, I find that my thoughts and perspectives develop even further. Nick Grantham on the podcast. How are you, mate? I'm very good, Steve. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How has your summer been? Uh, it's, it's been an interesting summer. Um, so some time with the family, which is always nice and, uh, a new role, a new role at the, uh, end of August. So back into full-time employment, which is a change of pace, but a welcome change of pace for us. New role. So a full-time employment. So I'm, I was going to yeah. talk to you about consultancy and why you've gone into that and a well, career. You and now, you've, you know, you're moving back into full-time employment and uh, national insurance numbers. <laughs> but there's always a side hustle though, Steve. There's always a side hustle. So still still consultant, but uh, just a consultant with a full-time job as well. All right. Well, let, let's get into that in a bit. But I'm, I'm keen to also flag for people that you presented at our first conference in 2017 and, and re- made a real impact there, which was superb. And people can listen to that again we sort of served the conference presentations up as a bit of an hors d'oeuvre to to the podcast episodes so um still people are uh, listening to that on an ongoing basis so i don't know if you can remember what you actually said but (laughs) whether you might be repeating some themes but if it's if it's worth saying it's probably worth saying twice isn't it yeah nick we've probably struck this sort of kindred spirit for for decades probably as much as anything but 
but certainly recently around this idea about professional effectiveness. So I'm really keen to get to that uh, yeah. because because we can just then go, yeah, and I agree uh, all the way through. But yeah, it'd be really useful for people tuning in to hear a bit about your your career, the the stepping from from that institute type system into consultancy, and I'd love to ask you about. Mm-hmm how you create success in that type of role. Um, yeah. and, and then on to maybe the, your book, you're hired and the employability and the professional effectiveness that you're so passionate about as, as I am. Yeah. Um, but it'd be really good if you could just give us a bit of a background to you and where you've come from, where have you, where have you originated from? <laughs> so, uh, down South originally now, now misplaced up in the Northeast, uh, place I said I'd never live, but actually I can't see myself moving from here now. It's, uh, it's a great place, Newcastle. Um, but yeah, youngest of three. Um, so two older brothers. Uh, the middle one, way more talented athletically than me. So I was just a bit of a trier. Um, not academically probably the smartest tool in the box. Uh, and I talk about that in the book about how the sort of the entry exams to comprehensive kind of passed me by. And then I found myself in in what was lovingly known in those days as the remedials. I'm not sure you can call it remedials now, probably special measures or something like that. Um, and uh, just sort of in that class, in, in first year comprehensive thinking, oh, I'm not sure I should should be here really. I'm probably a little bit smarter. So just started working hard and moved up the sort of groups. Left school at 16 because that's kind of what everyone in my family did and got safe jobs. Uh, so I went and worked for Barclays Bank and then uh, Royal Sun Alliance Insurance. And I was horrific at both jobs. Just, I mean, I got a D in maths. So why I thought working in a bank <laughs> would be a good idea. Um, but it was kind of, it was good because it was like sixth form, but you got paid. Um, so I had a good two years at Barclays and then four fairly miserable years at Sun Alliance. I just wasn't good at people's pensions and it wasn't for me. And that, that was really when I'd started competing in taekwondo and I, I'd met uh, teammates that were going to university and doing sports science and I didn't even know you could go to university and do sports science I thought you just went and did like astrophysics and English literature so this kind of world opened up to me so I went back to night school studied for an A-level um, got accepted to Chester where I went and, and studied and I think it was beneficial going in as a mature student um, because I knew what it was like on the outside and I didn't really want to sit in a one metre by one metre cubicle for the next 40 years. I I wanted to wear shorts and a t-shirt and go to some cool places um, and work with some exciting athletes. So I I worked hard when I was at university uh, and sort of squeezed every last drop. And it wasn't probably the most esteemed establishment, learning establishment in the country, but Similar to, we might get onto this with, with careers, people are always looking to go somewhere else and do something better and be at a better place. Just like make the most out of what you've got, where you are now, make that the best place. And that's what I did with Chester. Um, and it afforded me some really good opportunities. Um, I'll be forever grateful to Dave Kelly, who was one of my tutors, sort of introduced me to Claire Feasy and, and Lynn Booth, who ran the Northwest Sports Science Support Project. I pestered the hell out of them to get me onto that project which I then did, and that was my first taste of providing sports science support and fitness testing to young tennis players. Um, they introduced me to Dave Collins, 
who who kind of gave me that confidence of just admitting that I didn't know someone's sport when I stood in for him in judo. I, I remember phoning them up and talking to him. And he said, just, just tell him you don't know judo, Nick. Tell him you know sports science, but ask them for advice. And he, he was really humble and gave me a lot of his time. Um, and then from the university, I, this is kind of where our paths probably met unknowingly. Uh, I think we applied for two positions, uh, one at the British Olympic Medical Centre and one at Lillyshaw Sports Injury and Human Performance Centre. Um, you were interviewed for both. I didn't make the interview for the BOMC. I only got the one call in. Uh, but you got the job at the BOMC and I got the job at Lillyshaw. Um, yeah. And I, and I think on reflection, probably those were the right decisions. I'm not sure I would have thrived quite as much down at uh, down in London with the rowers and, and the endurance community. Um, but I guess that's where we kind of first met um, because it, there was no real sort of sports science network really outside of universities at that time. You had no, yourself. No one there. There's 10 full-time sports scientists in the country then. It's crazy. So there's kind of you guys down at the BOMC. There was Andy Harrison and, and his team over at Welsh Institute of Sport and us as a private organisation at Lillyshaw. And I think we were quite forward thinking to go, actually, let's, why don't we go down and spend some, a day with you in London? And why don't we go across and spend a day in Wales? And we all sort of met each other um, and swapped stories and built that initial network, I think. Yeah. Um, what was that called? Applied Sports Science Development Group. We tried to give it a really snappy acronym, but it didn't work. But um, yeah, that was a nice little congregation of, of some like-minded people who I think I remember having the conversation in the canteen at a conference just saying we should just get together and just shoot the breeze because we're so different from everyone else here. And, uh, and that was a nice little exercise of, of us driving a network ourselves. Yeah. Almost a little bit like we're the only ones, which got exciting actually, but it was, um, probably has been lost a little bit where a lot of people say now, where's the, where's the provision? Where's that sort of, Who's providing that for us? Where, where are the CPD opportunities that I need to go to for free? Um, well, we drove it ourselves, I think. Yeah, we did. Yeah, it was all on our time, really. Because I know, like you say, trying to find that sense of belonging, I know going to my first basis conference, I just felt like a complete outsider because everyone was very academic and, and spoke in these sort of different language to me. And I was like, oh my God. And I'm again... I saw Dave Collins speak. And I was like, he actually kind of speaks a bit like me, far cleverer, <laughs> but like, well, if he can come from the military and do these sorts of things, well, maybe there's hope for me. And I think you're right. Us traveling to the Wales and coming to see you guys was that first opportunity of like-minded people delivering outside of academia. Yeah. So let me just ask you about those sort of early years then. Cause I, I you know, this is probably a little bit like, Oh boy, done good. But, <laughs> I've got the same sort of background of failing at school and and coming out with pretty much nothing. But then trying again, which then I felt so far behind everyone else that it just gave me huge drive to catch up. Yeah. And found quite sticky ways to learn as I went. You know, like I was, I would when I was learning about anatomy, I'd go and hammer the hamstrings. And so I would remember that, or we'd learn about maximum heart rate or breathlessness and I'd go and do hill runs and I would, yeah. and it would stick. So 
it sounded a bit like with one A level to your to your name, just thinking I've got to I've got to get there through tenacity as opposed to that I'm ahead of the curve all the way through my career. I'm a high achiever, A grade student, first class, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Which to me that sounds like the process that you've yeah. gone through is as valuable as the certificates, if not more. Well, I think you can probably draw comparisons to sport and, and academies where, you know, should you specialise early? Should you have generalised training first? And sometimes the people that excel when they're young then drop out of sport. And I think that's probably similar in in any profession. You know, there were undoubtedly people that were smarter than me at university, but maybe it was a little bit too easy and they didn't push as hard and didn't see the opportunities. I, I remember in my... Uh, master's group uh, our Dave Kellett said we've got a request from a guy called Kieran he's going to run the marathon de Sable we're going to put together a sports science support group it's going to be voluntary um, in your own time traveling the crew and our sage to use the climate change all these things in a class of like 30 people I think three or four of us actually went yeah we'll, we'll do that and I probably wasn't the best physiologist there but that, I, I saw that as a chance to work with a real live human being that's going to do something crazy and I can see if I can make him better and put this stuff into practice. So I think it's those recognising the opportunities and just saying, yeah, I'll have a go at that and then figure out how you do it once you get going. Yeah, you don't hear that much about uh, people that sat down and those opportunities and said no. no. Or they just left their hand unraised you don't hear that about those people and I, I remember the same sort at, at university but continually say oh it's not fair or how do I get this how do I get that but they're not not prepared to do the graft yeah or the voluntary hours in addition to and that doesn't seem to me to be something you hear about but it it's ultimately a determinant of your later career yeah I remember Claire Feasy and Lynn Booth coming in again talking about the Northwest Sports Science Support Project in our third year and I was the only person in that year group that kept going down to the phone box before mobile phones and every week leaving a voicemail for Claire hello it's me again I'd still like to come on the project you know and after about two or three months got a call back and you're in and I just why wouldn't 30 people put their hands up for that so you were a pest let's yeah. get that let's get I that was straight. a pest yeah um, what <laughs> why were you a pest because I didn't want to go back and work for an insurance company for 40 years and, and, and tow a caravan, and that'd be my weekend. Right. I'm not sure. What not that there's anything wrong with caravans. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just the, guy, the guy that I shared a cubicle with was big into his caravans and had a big sort of rockabilly quiff, and I saw myself turning into that person in 40 years' time. Like, thank you for the clarification. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, so you'd lived a life that you didn't want to live. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right. That's fascinating. So that gives you context. It gives you that perspective. It gives you the the drive to make it happen whilst you can make it happen, as opposed to going in blind to your educational experience and then kind of getting spat out the back and then not knowing what, and then yeah. probably defaulting to something that you're, it's not an ambition, but it's actually, it will do. Yeah. You're settling for something, I think, is, is what a lot of, most of my Colleagues went and worked at call centres or, or became medical reps, which is fine, but 
that's not what I set out to do on sports science degree for. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we crossed paths around that sort of late nineties and you, you keep reminding me every time I speak to you about that, you going for the BOMC job. And, yeah. uh, like you say, I think you're probably in the right place. I, I was, I was probably stacked for that job anyway, in terms of probably being more of a physiologist. Yeah. I'd worked two years with a rowing team. Uh, I'd been down there. I'd trained up on the protocols. Uh, I changed my flight at 150 pounds uh, to get to make the interviews. The first thing they did was thank me. Uh, and I was like, right, I'm on the front foot here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how your, uh, you would have got on with the rowers. It would have probably would have, you would have given them a dose of too much reality yeah. with that accent. I, th- I, I, I think, <laughs> I, I just think, you know, on, on reflecting, we both got the right jobs for the right person. So it comes down to the recruiters. Obviously, knew, you know, they did a good job of looking for the right person. Not So academically, we might have stacked up very similarly. But like you say, your experiences probably stacked you for that job. And me going to um, Lillyshaw with, with John Brewer, the experience that I'd had with the Marathon de Sable and working in team sports worked better for that environment. Yeah. So where did you, you went from, you, you were at Liddershaw and then you started working with a number of different teams, netball, gymnastics, is that right? Yeah, in England netball, so I went to. So when I was at Liddershaw, I was with gymnastics and then John Brewer said I was committing career suicide to leave and go and work with England netball as a strength and conditioning coach. So that was two adverts, one for England rugby, one for England netball. I think they were the first two formal S&C positions that were advertised. Um, and at the time, Sports science and physiology was was king, I think. And and John, obviously being a physiologist, just said, "What are you doing? No one, no one even knows what strength and conditioning is." But I just kind of had a hunch um, and and some insight from overseas that this was a an element of performance that was going to grow, um, and it was the element that probably interested me more. So I'd I'd done the whole sort of fitness testing every sort of six weeks. And I really wanted to know what happened in the middle um, and I had a taste of that with the gymnasts, helping them improve. So, yeah, took the leap of faith and went and worked with netball. And what a great sport. I loved it. They've had a resurgence, haven't they? Maybe it's just kicking in from all your early work. <laughs> I'd like to think there's a legacy that was put in place. Uh, you just laid the foundations. Well, you know, I coach, I coach the uh, I coach the coach now. So, well, actually, both of them, Jess has just taken over from Tracy. So, yeah. I'd like to think I'd like to think there's a seed there somewhere, a uh, legacy. You laid the foundation, yeah. You're claiming yeah. that one. That's good. Yeah, that's nice yeah. retrospective, deep retrospective work. That is. <laughs> and 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 then where from where from that? So that was um, to the English Institute of Sport. Um, I would have stayed at netball, but like I, I loved working at netball. I had best coach Lynn Gunson, best performance director I've ever worked with, Waimarana, Tamarana, and it was just amazing to work with those coaches and it was a great sport, but the English Institute of Sport was starting to be put in place. And with netball, you, I either decided to become the netball expert of which there's probably five countries to work in. And I was already working in probably one of the more well-paid ones. And I didn't really want to go and live in New Zealand, or Australia. Um, or you had this thing, the English Institute of Sport. And actually to be fair, the performance director said, you should go for the English Institute of Sport in terms of your long-term career development. You know, yes, you could thrive in netball, but there's going to be so many opportunities to work with 
multiple sports. So she was like one of my favorite bosses ever. Um, so so when, tell us about her. So, well, why is uh, she, she was just, I mean, she was formidable. Um, she would scare the pants off of me if I, if I got called to a meeting and I'd never done anything wrong, but you kind of, it was almost like you felt that you were in for a bollocking. What's her name? Um, oh, don't make me pronounce the whole name, Steve. Go on. It's really hard. It's, well, I just call her Y. But you have to look oh. up, yeah, why? W-A-I, you have to look up the rest of it because it's, it's complicated. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, is that New Zealand origin? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So she, she was fantastic and things like her say, you know, on my CPD, I wanted to do more and more strength and conditioning courses. And she said, you don't need to do a strength course. I want you to do a business course. So I had to do a, a open university certificate in management and, she was absolutely right. I didn't need more X's and O's. I needed to know how to manage people and um, deal with, you know, long-term strategic plannings. But at, at that time, all of my colleagues were just doing more and more technical stuff. Um, and just their knowledge of that sport and other high-performance sports was was amazing. The same with Lynn Gunson, who was the coach. She just massively underestimated as coaches in, in this country. So that early breadth, that invest in, investment into almost the non-technical, how do you deliver your work? Not necessarily yeah. what you're going to deliver. Not necessarily yeah. the craft skills that, you know, that we've got that common interest in, but almost the mechanics of how you work as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, strength and conditioning coaches know how to write annual plans but just looking at strategic goals of an organization or you know over three four five years what is it that you want to actually achieve budgets um managing human resources it just it, it was actually useful just being the one person in sport sat around a, a table with other people from a diverse range of industries and professions doing this this management certificate it was, it was, on reflection, it was really good, a really good opportunity to take. Do you find that useful now in a kind of consulting role? Yeah, I've, I've still got, I've still got the course materials at home in, in the bookcase. Um, and, and there's still definitely elements that you refer back to um, time and time again, you know, and so, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting in the sense that I think when you're in that sort of network, especially when you get plugged into like an institute type system, the, the growth and the learning from networking with people is just huge. And I think I probably underestimated just how much growth there was running your own business effectively. Yeah. Where there's so much to life that you're not thinking about when you're plugged in as an employee, but equally that's one of the key dynamics that you, you haven't necessarily got the team, but you've, You've got that massive uh, growth and learning. Yeah, um, yeah. I think like being a consultant for twelve years is you. You have to pick up a lot of skill sets very quickly. Um, being able to balance different workloads, being able to manage. So every every contract that you work with, they'll think that they'll they'll obviously want you to be their priority but actually having to manage those priorities and, and looking at income sources and not being underexposed in one area and over in, in, in another um 
yeah, there's lots of skills. I think we we talk about having a side hustle, um, and that came up last year on social media about should should we have secondary jobs and again a lot of the books that I started reading around uh, self development sort of ten fifteen years ago. Um, things like Never Eat Alone, The Millionaire Next Door, um, all of the E-Myth is another great book. All these books were, it's okay to have your day job, but you need something else on the side to give you some additional skills, but also to give you some security when that inevitable day happens. Because we're not in a profession, or I don't think there are any professions now that are 40 years man and boy, same company. It's a different, it's a different era. So I think we have to be prepared for that. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely coming. Yeah, much more concertedly over the next five or ten years. But it's it's a strange one, isn't it? Because you you feel like um, if you if you move on from a place, there's a sort of a disloyalty. But ultimately, a company has no loyalty. You might have the people having loyalty, but a company doesn't have a loyalty to to a person. And so you've ultimately got loyalty to your family and feeding them and housing them haven't you really yeah absolutely yeah 100 percent um that, that's the sort of thing that professional football players or professional sports people get absolutely hammered for when they when they say oh you know i'm playing for my family or we should be playing for the club and and or, or for our nation well yes to a degree but you know you've you've got to look after your family and not not being selfish you've got to look after yourself and do what's right for you and yeah I always I remember I think when I left when I left netball I thought they'd be devastated and the whole netball system would fall apart because they didn't have me as an SSC coach <laughs> and I think within a week I was getting texts going this new guy's great he's amazing yeah. Nick, Nick who you, um, said, you said you're interested <laughs> in development you should have a chat to him yeah so you, you quickly realise that you know everybody is expendable you know and uh, and life does move on and players and athletes and teams will find replacements that can do the job as well, if not better than, better than when you were there. So yeah, no, it's an interesting concept of sort of loyalty. So why, why did you leave the EIS? I don't know whether I've had this conversation with you. So we were both in, <laughs> what, when, and when did you leave? Uh, about, so, 2007, I left. That was really early. So that Physically. Was, physically, yeah. So I, uh, um, <laughs> yeah. I, still... probably, I probably departed mentally a little bit earlier than that. <laughs> I'm interested because we can do a bit of a comparison here because I kind of left my dream job in some ways. Yeah. Um, so I was curious to know, certainly as it was growing, uh, we'd just been awarded the home Olympics. Uh, it's still growing and you kind yeah. of stepped off the bus. And I, I remember thinking, that's interesting. I wonder mm. why. And um, uh, I'm curious to find out what the motivations were for that and what was the drivers to go in independent. I was miserable. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, 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 um, so I, I loved the English Institute when I started. It was, it was, again, it was brilliant because like nine regional leads, S&C came together. Everyone was sort of young and real young thrusters and like super keen to develop the organization. And it was, it was like for two or two or three years, it was just a real melting pot of ideas. And I think as the organization grew, it probably wasn't able to keep up with the ambitions of, and probably the diverse range of ambitions of those S&C coaches. So I think there was a period where 
if you wanted to progress um, financially or professionally, you kind of started to move away from the gym floor and behind a desk and becoming more of a uh, the more of the strategy and and the sort of the paperwork aspect of it. And at that point, I still felt I still feel now I've got a lot of coaching in me, and I love the coaching and I love the interaction and the day to day delivery and i really didn't want to sit behind a desk in an office away from the gym but that was the only route that was available to me at that time you know and we explored maybe taking sabbaticals maybe uh, becoming a specialist in a particular type of sport combat sports so it was interesting to see how some of those roles have now evolved with their heads of performance but at the time it it was you either on the floor coaching or you need to go into management and I guess I hit a bit of a ceiling and became increasingly sort of disillusioned. Um, and I remember my coaching, I just thought I started to stagnate with my coaching and it, and it could have very easily become a nine to five job, turn up, coach 20 athletes, go home, repeat. And I, and I really didn't want that to happen. Um, and, and I think it was ultimately making me miserable. And I remember speaking to Kate, who's my wife on, on the drive home one, one night. And she said, just resign, just resign. And I'm like, well, I can't. Cause like you say, EIS is going one direction. It's like, again, career suicide <laughs> that I'd committed before. And she was right. So I got home, wrote my resignation, handed it in. And, um, yes, then started to shit myself massively because <laughs> there wasn't really anything formal I was going to go on to. I remember speaking to my my boss, and he said, "Okay, so what what job are you going to next?" And I was like, "I haven't got one," um, which was <laughs> which was unusual for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and it was a bit unusual. Um, but that then created that sense of urgency of, okay, well now I need to provide. So, what am I going to do? Um, that's that's an interesting concept because that that sense of action that comes from what next? Yeah, I've never felt anything quite like that. From okay, you know, I mean, you, you graft when you're working with a team, um, and you, you put in and out the hours, eighteen hour days regularly to to make it happen. Get up before the athletes, go to bed after the athletes, and but but I've never felt that sense of holy moly what am I going to do next? And yeah. it's interesting when you talk about side hustles, talking to a number of kind of colleagues where they've got this sort of independent business brewing a couple of days a week, but they've got a nice cushy number yeah. working with a premiership football club or, or whatever it might be. And that provides quite a lot of safety and yeah. stability. Not, not that you're going to get stability in premiership football necessarily, but it doesn't create that drive and action in the side hustle and no. finding that balance to, to be able to make it happen or hold yourself accountable to some deadlines, for example. Yeah. How did that first feel when you went out, out alone then? <laughs> Just, or when you've got to pay your mortgage, you've got to pay your mortgage. Um, like they're not going to wait for you. They might wait for you for a month, maybe two months, but yeah, it's just you. You did. I think what it what it did for me very quickly was we talked talked about hubris and humility. 
So I definitely had some hubris when I was at the IS. I was working with the best athletes in the world. I must be amazing. Um, and I was still quite a humble person, but it was definitely a bit of like, hey, I'm the, one of the best of the best. And then, and, and would look down my nose probably at other opportunities. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to work with general public. I'm not going to work in business. No, no, no. That's, that's, I'm going to wait for the perfect job with the elite team to come out. When you've got to pay your mortgage, you will do what it takes to pay your mortgage. And actually, I think that forced me into some uh, environments that I probably wouldn't have even considered, uh, but actually gained a lot from working with general population, recreational athletes within a private facility. What, what like? Know. What did it give you? What were, the, what were those sort of nuggets? Because if you, if you have kind of, I don't know, progress is the wrong word, kind of yeah. through the ranks of sort of junior and then senior and then international level athletes. Um, but if you're then kind of going backwards, if you see what I mean, what, but what does that the give perception, you? The perception is you're going backwards, yeah. but you're not. And that's what I think that's what a lot of graduates need to get. It, like, just because you're a first team and you've got a crest on your chest doesn't necessarily mean you're really optimising performance necessarily and, and making a real significant impact. Um, so working with general population, recreational triathletes, recreational cyclists, footballers, some of those were the most motivated individuals totally that I've ever worked with because, do you know what? They were paying me out of their money. They decided to come and train with me. And, you know, them completing an Ironman was a massive life achievement, as as important as being stood on top of an Olympic podium. And I... And I I've been very fortunate to work at both ends and had people, as you have, stand on top of Olympic podiums. I kid you not, some of those general population athletes worked as, if not harder, had more determination and balanced all the demands of work, life, and was super rewarding. And it, it just opened my eyes to actually there is life outside of elite sport and it's it's only really the sort of the snobbery that is perpetuated within the profession that if you don't work in elite sport, you're not delivering performance, which is nonsense. Yeah. You can work in healthcare, you can work in private settings and have a massive impact. So you, you've hit upon there the, the uh, you just, you're just finding excellence and human endeavour in all pockets of life. Is that, is yeah. that what you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, will, I will rank working with post-cardiac rehab patients and helping them recover some level of, of normality to their life, function, sense of self-esteem. I rank that right up there with any gold medals. Yeah. Um, I also rank a lot of the cut and thrust of some of those people that didn't make it. You know, it, you, you think about the, the winners, but then ultimately those, that leaves a mass of people that didn't win. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the pursuit and the persistence that they demonstrated along the way. To me, just I, I get goosebumps thinking about the ups and downs and the roller coaster that they've been through, as well yeah. as the fact that a head teacher grafting away on a day-to-day basis that's trying to look for a bit of an edge for their team, learn from high performance. They're just as inspiring as any elite athlete ever. Absolutely, I, I think some of the some of the loveliest messages that I've had 
and cards are from, like you say, the broken biscuits, the athletes that like left it all out there and didn't quite achieve, but actually they're quite happy because they, they tried everything they could and were the best that they, they could possibly be, but might have been seventh or eighth. Not bad going, you know, seventh or eighth in the world is pretty damn good. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So you've chucked, a, you've chucked your notice in and you've gone for it. You're crapping yourself and, <laughs> and you are selling yourself however you can. Tell me yeah. about that selling bit. You, you know, you're now kind of invoicing people or you're uh, putting your, your name out there, your word out there. Yeah. What, what's your take on how you balance kind of communicating what you do without it being too selly and trying to ram it down people's throat? It's, it's a really d- difficult um, tightrope to walk. I'm just asking um, for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I probably had to get a l- little bit more confident. And so I was always very embarrassed about telling people how much I was going to charge and what my fees were. I was very embarrassed about talking about athletes I'd worked with. Um, and then you talk to any marketer. I remember I used to work with people and I said, well, I've done a bit of this and a little bit of that. And, you know, and then they, they look and go, bloody hell, that's, this is a bit better than what you've just explained to me. You, you've done this and this and this. You need to tell people that information. So I think it is a challenge. Um, I, th- I think it, you've probably got to have a portfolio to back it up. I think what you might see on social media now is people that have rubbed shoulders, walked past someone in, in a gym, and now they've trained them for six months, apparently. Um, so I think you have to be, there's a difference between selling and lying. So, you know, tell the truth, um, e- even if it might not sound quite as glamorous. Um, but it, it is a difficult one to, to balance out. I'm probably not the best salesman. Um, so I'm probably not the best person to ask about. What... No, but ultimately you've got to, you've got to make a living, so you have to charge. Yeah. It's not all a, yeah. a free gig, and it's, it's certainly a dynamic that um, we're constantly thinking about. We get uh, more noisy, that's the right term, we communicate more when we've got yeah. things that we're selling, literally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then when someone says, oh, I didn't know about that, I would love to have heard about it, then it makes you yeah. think I've got to do more yeah. of that. Um, obviously on the backdrop of trying to add value to people's lives and, and provide good content and so on. I think that's the, that's the key you touched on there, is there's a balance between, okay, just accept that I will be selling a course or a conference or my, my consultancy fees, but what I'll also try and do is give information that is free to access or or point you in the right direction of other content that i think is really valuable so it's so that yeah every fifth message is going to be probably a sales pitch but i'm not one of these that does the big sales letters that you see in america because you get these sales letters and it's like okay i'll basically just scroll down to the bottom and tell me the price i'll just i'll just tell you i've got a course in two weeks time this is this is what it is and then the next five posts may be actual free information is is a great podcast is a great book to read uh, so i think it's it's striking that balance it's when all you get is just hit over the head with sales letters one after the other um, yeah I, I, do you subscribe to seth godin's newsletter I, I don't subscribe to his newsletter i've read pretty much all of his books yeah. um he'll, he'll send a blog every day and and what i really like about them is that they're about 
they range between sort of 20 words to 200 words. Yeah. And it just lands in your, in your email box and pretty much all of them add value. Yeah. Not all of them make me go, oh yeah, I'll do that. And then maybe every 10, maybe every 20, it's maybe not that frequent actually. The bottom of the blog is, and on this, you can enroll on this course if you want or sign up to our whatever training. And, and I sit there and I think I, I would spend the money if I had it. I'm, it's absolutely fine for you to sell stuff because you added so much value to my life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a, a lot of people don't. They just feel like a bit of noise about, um, look what I've done. I'm humbled to have been submitted to a, my abstract to this minor conference. It, it doesn't necessarily speak to adding value to someone else's lives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing that I came up against was obviously once you start selling what you're doing is from your colleagues and your peer group, oh, I can't believe he charges that much. That's outrageous. Um, and then you, and, and there's, there's probably a little bit of um, jealousy attached to that. Um, and I'm just like, I don't charge extortionate rates. It's like going hourly rates. and. I, by the way, I have to pay my tax out of that, and my pension, and my travel, and my all the things that you get as part of your full time contract. So, have you had um, that specifically, or is that a noise and a voice in your head? It's, I, it's definitely, it's definitely gone on. Definitely, absolutely. I know that I've had in the early days, people would ask me to give a to do a, a conference presentation or, or run a workshop, and I'd give them my day fee and give yeah, it's you, Nick. Well, well, yeah, but you still got to pay me for the knowledge. Um, and I've always, I, I've found it's always been more difficult to sort of do courses for strength and conditioning coaches because well, it's just Nick. Nick. Nick will do that for, you know, a packet of biscuits and a cup of tea. Um, whereas other organisations see the value and, and other allied professionals, so mainly sort of physiotherapy, rehab, that I've kind of made a bit of a niche for. Yeah. They see the added value and, and the expert from out of town, I, I guess. But yeah, there's it, probably a lot of it inside my head as well. Yeah, well, that's that. that well, certainly, when I just started doing corporate speaking, some uh, advice I had from uh, one of my old lecturers and mentors uh, who did, does the same. He said that what's, and my guess is you're probably being held back by imagining that word will get back yeah. to your former family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, God, it's like a mind reader, and <laughs> and it is that sense of just thinking, oh, I've got, I've got to kind of establish my new identity. I'm still creating this uh, hesitation based on something that's imagined in my head more than anything. Yeah. I've had people yeah. say I can't afford that, and but equally, and and the best bit of advice I was given about pricing was about you get to charge nothing or an awful lot. And people should have permission to pay you or offer you to pay you nothing or an awful lot. Yeah. And everything else in the middle is absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny, yeah, eh? I, I knew I was way off the mark. My, the fir- one of the first speaking engagements I did for a, an NHS trust, and I was, I was racking my brains, what should I charge for a day? And I'd yeah. come up with a figure, and I was like, oh, that's way too much. I'll, I'll have to take that down and, you know, took it right down. 
I submitted it, and within about 30 seconds, I got, yeah, that's fine, we'll pay that. And I'm like, oh, damn, I've run the charge. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you learn as you go on. <laughs> so, um, so tell us about, um, so you're, you're four years into your own consultancy, and then you start writing this book, You're Hired. Yeah. What's sort of driving you there? Because a lot of my, actually, I should probably ask the same question myself, actually, but um, a lot of the driver for me to kind of work in this area around personal development, helping people, the next generation, managing and leading people has been driven by my discomfort when somebody fails or when yeah. somebody potentially is fired or I have to do that because they've underperformed, but I think they're good. And then wanting to try and find ways of supporting people. But you're four years independent. What was sort of driving your motivation at giving back in some ways? So I think the seeds were probably sown when I was at the University Institute of Sport. So I had, uh, as part of the Fast Track Practitioner Program run by UK Sport, we had, a, I had an intern and he, he was a bright, and he's gone on to have a very successful career in high-performance sport. But at the time, you know, he graduated and we had 12 months to get him to become an autonomous practitioner. And yes, he had the grades and he had the science, but there was no way I was going to let him loose with an Olympic level athlete. And going through that 12 month process with him and putting the scaffolding around him initially and just just watch what we do, be in the meetings, then taking the scaffolding off and letting him have an element that he delivers whilst being supervised and then stepping away and letting him have a go on his own until get to that last sort of two, three months where he's an autonomous practitioner delivering himself. I think that's where the seed was sown. And then as an independent, I just kept getting emails off of people. Uh, what books should I read? What courses should I go on? Can you have a look at my CV? Can you have a look at my covering letter? I keep applying for jobs, but don't get them. Um, and I was sat in my home office, uh, it was probably about midnight, answering the umpteenth email, hi, thanks for emailing me, I've had a look at your CV, this is what you should... And I thought, there's got to be a more time-efficient way than sending the same email 20, 30 times. Um, and I struck upon this idea, again, probably because I've been reading some self-development books, I think probably the one that influenced me the most was by Michael Heppel called How to Be Brilliant. Um, and he had some really useful professional development tools in there. Um, and I thought, I'll write a book. I'm going to write a book. That's what I'll do. Because it was near Christmas. It was near New Year. So, you know, I'm going to do good things next year. Um, and it kind of stagnated for about a year. It was, it was an idea on a piece of paper. Um, I then did a, a one-day workshop, uh, which was really well received. And I had the, the, the transcript from that. Um, written up into a book form and and yeah I was just right I'm gonna do it and again it sat for about a year almost in like a 90% finished manuscript and again I was working with a business advisor and he set me a dead he said right he said here's the deal you either get that book published within three months or you can't do it for another two years let's see how important it is to you um and we got the book published and, and self-published it and it was because I knew I'd probably taken a non-traditional route to where I was and I, 
I thought there was definitely some help I could give to people. And I was seeing when I worked at the Institute and outside of that, I was seeing CVs and sitting on interview panels thinking, my God, you've not even done the basic preparation to come to this interview. Your CV is full of mistakes. You know, you've not sold yourself. And I just thought it's not getting looked at in the higher education, further education establishments. People are being told, you know, you just would see CVs that were Times Roman numeral font, double space, that were really good to get you into university. Never going to get you through the door at a high performance facility. People turn up not even knowing anything about the organization or the people within that organization where they wanted to work. Um, So I thought it was just no one was planning their career. Everyone was just hoping it would happen. Um, I I said to you, I I saw a really good program with Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld was talking about comedians, current crop of comedians and how they're super talented, but they kind of sit in their room going, I'm super talented. I'm an amazing comedian. I'm going to be discovered. And one day the comedian's bureau is going to turn up with black suits and sunglasses and say, uh, Steve Ingham, you're a really talented, amazing comedian. We want you to come with us for this perfect job. And it was almost like the graduates, I've got my degree. I've done a bit of hands-on. If I sit here and wait, I'm going to get called to work at the IS. People are going to turn up from the sports science high-performance agency and say, we've discovered you. Come with us, pack your bag. You're going to go to Tokyo. And work with an Olympian. <laughs> we've we've read your second year undergraduate yeah. environmental studies dissertation. We've heard you're amazing, and we have the role for you. And it's almost like people felt that. Well, in five years, I'll I'll, I'll be at Manchester City, and I'm like, what, what are the stepping stones? What's the process that you're going to do? So much in the same way, when you write an annual training program for an athlete, it was kind of taking that concept and saying, okay, well, let's plan out your your month the next three months what are the steps that you've got to take on a weekly basis to, to get you there where are your let's do a gap analysis where's the the gaps in your skill set so for someone like me networking i was i still find it difficult now but going to you going to a conference i just used to sit at the back not talk to anybody um so i knew that was a real gap in my skill set so i had to find ways of putting myself out there at, at those sorts of events so yeah, I just saw what was coming through the system and thought they're not prepared. They, as the as I say in the book, they go into a gunfight, you know, with a knife. They are not prepared because there's people out there that are packing all sorts of machine guns and shotguns, and when it comes down to it, the job interview, they're going to take you down. You got no chance. Yeah, I like the analogy, although I'm not sure many people have got machine guns. I'm not sure there's many people with with vocational skill graduating from many universities nowadays there are a number there are a couple that are doing some good work a couple mm. of universities that are doing good work like Liverpool John Moores have got good placement schemes for example yeah yeah but but equally the vocational skills gap has, has grown it's worsened that's what I've seen over the years I think you've got very smart people that can do lots of amazing things with with uh, spreadsheets and data and I think going back to reflecting on my education, the Marathon de Sable, the Northwest Sports Science Support Project, actually, you know, Dave Kellett standing me in front of a group of parents and me having to give a talk on plyometrics to 
mums and dads and 12 year old kids. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, I did, but you know, how to interact with different people was, you know, on reflection, that was really invaluable. Um, but that's, that's one type of opportunity. And, and you know, like we've, we've got this online course coming up where actually my, my big statement is no, exactly as you've said it, no one's going to knock on your door and ask you to come and work for them. You've, yeah. you've got to get out there or you've got to develop a reputation for yourself based on yeah. good work. Yeah. Um, but equally, even if you do have those Dave Kellett moments where they say, go on, you can, you can have an opportunity. I still think a bit like the side hustle that it's, it, it's that's dwarfed in its effectiveness. If you get out there and graft and create those opportunities for yourself, that's yeah. self-generated, get off your ass and knock on doors yourself completely independently. That offers a whole different layer of development and, uh, and mindset about you getting out there in the world and pitching yourself as opposed to, Oh, I've put my application in. They've given me the placement. I'll go and do that and shadow and literally shadow, stand in yeah. the shadows. Yeah, I think there's definitely a skill set that people need to develop as a, as a modern graduate now. Yeah. And so the, um, what, what else needs to be communicated? I mean, you've got your Bible, your strength and conditioning Bible, but that is, that is the specifics, isn't it? Have you, are you still writing? Are you got, still got some plans? I mean, we, <laughs> what else needs to be communicated, Nick? Um, I think increasingly it is this this whole area, and I think certainly within strength and conditioning, the more you go to conferences, the more conversations now are around the coach, S&C, athlete interaction, and being able to speak each other's languages and um, be, being a chameleon is, is key. You know, you're still essentially the same. You're still the S&C coach, but depending on the environment, you can adapt to that environment and, and change your language and the way you interact and the way you disseminate information. So, you know, working in action sports with a downhill mountain bike team, as you'll know, they're just a very different person and a different way of communicating with them. And you have to adapt the, the way you, you are. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't, I think that's probably where the EIS was really useful for me because you had in any one day, maybe 20 different sports coming through the door. So, You've got to go from wheelchair basketball to uh, track and field to women's rugby to equestrian, and it's you've got to adapt as you go. The the language, the uniform, the way you give the information. And I think it's, that's difficult to get exposure to that. Yeah, and it's certainly been brewing on my mind about that. Once you're in, once you're in, and you've got the job, because it's sort of the preparation bit for the the graduates and the aspiring practitioners trying to get how you put a CV together, how you perform an interview as the theme for some of our webinars recently. But then when, when you actually get the job and then suddenly you're just thinking, Oh, this is different. Or there's a whole load of other things. I didn't, I don't even know what they are, but I'm confused by them. That sense yeah. when you go, you start your first day in a job and you're, you come home you've got a screaming headache, you're absolutely shattered, but all you've done is fill in an induction form in and meet a few people. That dynamic and the team working and developing trust and rapport and just finding out the norms, a lot of that goes unsaid. Yeah. But actually, you can quantify it, 
you can describe it, you can model it, you can yeah. you can talk about some of those dynamics, and that that doesn't exist, I don't think, really. I can, like I can absolutely talk to people about how to do how to approach your first three weeks in an organisation in a in a professional football club in a with a downhill mountain bike team, and, and I and I know some of the strategies I put in place when the, the mountain bike guys interviewed me because there was, there was three of us in the mix, all very, very qualified to do the job. And I knew I'm doing some background. It was about making a connection, a personal connection with one of the key riders. And, you know, it, it that connection came during the drive to the interview. when I remembered I'd been to see an urban downhill race about five or, about 10 years prior to that and I thought I pulled over in the car because it was quite a unique event and I thought I wonder if they raced at that event quick quick Google search sure enough they raced at that event so during the conversation the presentations I said oh actually I think you know you was actually at an event that I went and watched as a spectator what was that what one was that and it was such a unique oh that was that was your first race wasn't it and it was like and all of a sudden there was a personal connection that He's not just a strength and conditioning coach. He's someone that's got an interest in downhill mountain biking and has had for 10 years, um, albeit on the periphery, but there was a connection. And it, I think all of a sudden, the X's and O's kind of drift away. And it's about finding those connections early on. And the more I go into clubs and try and um, implant myself very quickly, it's not necessarily about showing my technical skills, although that, that does come into it. It's about, do you play for X? Oh, at that club, I worked with so-and-so. Oh, did you? Yeah. And you can guarantee that they're then going to go away and quickly send a text. What's this guy like? Is he any good? Or, you know, and I think that's the key is making those personal connections before you start showing how smart you are technically. Yeah, I love that. That's a great story. And uh, But that's, as you say, there's the that's alongside uh, choosing an appropriate font and checking for mistakes on your CV. That is forethought and yeah. intentionality and diligence in preparation. Of thinking, if I get this gig, this could change my life. This could this could set a whole new acceleration to my my career. So, Nick, if you got a if you got a mantra, have you got a, some principles and philosophies that you you know, you really adhere to and that define you, that you live by? They've, they've probably come out in more recent years and I'm probably less embarrassed about them. Oh, so, go on then, this <laughs> No, it's, no it's, it's, it's quite boring. But so I'm a, I am an unapologetic specialist generalist. Likewise, love that. And I think I was probably very embarrassed to, to say that for a long time because especially in the very male-orientated world of strength and conditioning, it was like, oh, you've got to be, you know, big S. You've got to be big on the strength and everyone's got to be doing power cleans and all these sorts of things and you've got to have deep domain knowledge um, and, you know, you've got to be the rugby guy or the football guy. Or, and I'm like, well, in terms of career longevity, I'm going to be the whoever wants to pay the mortgage guy. So, uh, yeah, at last count, I think it's 36 different sports. The principles you apply go across all the sports, but um, I'm quite comfortable with being probably the specialist generalist. And 
you know, the derogatory sort of term is jack of all trades, master of none. I, and I don't believe that. I think it's a real skill to be able to go from one day with a professional football team to the next with a downhill mountain bike racer and the next day work with a golfer and have an impact with, with all of those athletes. So I think having that depth of knowledge is really good. Um, it doesn't necessarily li- equip you to do your job in that sense. I, I, I kind of view it as a um, performance problem solving where you yeah. are drawing from inspiration and creating connections between quite diverse fields where you're drawing those together at that moment, that sort of crucible moment of making a decision about somebody's training that is so multifactorial that you could never apply scientific control to it anyway. But mm-hmm. you're making a judgment in that moment based on weighing all of those moments, those, those decisions up. Yeah, I think um, what, what's really interesting for me is when I go to a sport or, or a coach and they're, they're very nervous. I've had this just this last year and the coach is kind of nervous, like, well, yeah, you, I, know, I know you've worked in this sport, but not as much. And you've done all these other weird sports. And then once you actually start working with them, they start seeing all the connections. And they know it's not your first rodeo, and it's like, yeah, I can I can short circuit this and make that decision because I've done this in four different sports in similar situations with athletes that are not dissimilar to yours. Just because they wore a different uniform or used a different implement for their sport, it was still the decision making process. So, yeah. yeah, I'm unashamedly a specialist generalist. I think um, I'm, I'm super comfortable in my own skin now as well. So. My early presentations, um, I tried to be Mr. Science. That's not me. And I was probably horrific. Um, So I'm a lot more comfortable kind of telling stories. And there is science backing up what I do, but I have weird analogies. Anyone that reads the Strength and Conditioning Bible knows that I have weird metaphors and analogies. And I think it was reading the work of Nick Winkleman and people like that that kind of gave you permission to, to tell stories. Um, so yeah, I'm a lot more comfortable in my own skin. Uh, what else did I look at? Um, the hubris for humility is, is one, you know, so just realize what role you actually do play in performance. And I do believe we play a, a significant role in, in improving performance potential, but equally we are quite a small cog in a, in a very big wheel. So um, someone said backroom staff they're called backroom staff for a reason and I quite like that because I think whilst we are on podcasts and stuff like that I, I accept the, the what's going on with this is but we are still backroom staff you know it's still about athletes front and centre uh, so I quite like being in the background as much as possible even though I do do podcasts and stuff like that um, ask stupid questions uh, I've been quite happy being the the, the, th- the annoying three year old when I go into a new sport and ask him why, why do you do that? Why is that acceptable? And then with that, with all the sports I go to is, so there was a real fashion for marginal gains. Um, mm. Now I don't necessarily buy into the marginal gains philosophy for the majority of sports because the majority of sports that I've worked with, and I can only say on my personal experience, marginal gains is not the important thing. What I've had to look for is the massive, glaring, obvious thing that's really easy to do, that no one's doing it. And if we just do that, that will change everything. And that, for me, for most sports, you know, 
that's the key. There will be one or two sports like cycling where it is marginal gains, you know, it is looking at the minutiae, but they're so far removed and it's basically a point, go from A to B as quick as you can sport. You get into a sport with lots of moving parts and lots of individuals, so team sports. Sometimes it's the big stuff that gets missed because we're so bothered about the the minute detail of what sample we've just taken. And uh, yeah, so that, that's it really. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's, it almost felt like a bit of a process actually, a philosophy of thinking I'm, I'm comfortable in what I know and what I don't know or, or what is the essence of me. But also that a specialist generalist approach means that you can be versatile, agile or draw on diverse fields. Yeah. Asking so those think, stupid questions will hopefully get to that the nub of the big the big thing, as opposed to going in and saying, I'm the whatever guy. I'm the yeah. rate of force development guy or I'm the I'm the mental skills guy. Um and then that completely limits your impact. Yeah. Because they just think, well that's only, that's the only thing I can go to for that person. As opposed yeah, to I, actually finding the nugget. I know working with the Athens, you know, so I, I get there and I'm in to be their physical preparation coach and, and all the strength and power development stuff is all, it's all good. That's all comfortable. And then we start getting into, okay, we need to do some on bike conditioning. And I've like, I've, I've got a handle on energy systems, you know, it's not, I don't know energy systems, but I could have kind of bluffed my way through that. But actually the strength isn't in your network. Who did I, I gave you a call. Because yeah. if I'm, if I'm going to go to energy systems and, and endure I know someone that's going to be far better to come in and complement that aspect of what I'm doing. Um, and again, that's something that I've always been comfortable with is referring out to people and saying, actually, my scope of practice, I'm good at that, but I know someone that's awesome at it. So let's get the awesome person in to, to show us really what to do. That's a long-term win as well, though, isn't it? I mean, it's really actually quite effective to drag somebody else down and say, well, you don't want to listen to them. It does work and a Machiavellian approach, but not for very long. And then no. you get a bad name for uh, your attitude and approach and people will erode that trust without even realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's been a career highlight for you, Nick? Oh, you didn't ask me that question in the preparation notes. That stumped me now. Yeah, well, you know, going uh, off, off piece now. <laughs> Wait, what's coming career, next? Career highlights. Um, wow. I don't think it's necessarily when people have even won the major. I think it goes back to what we were talking about before. Um, don't get me wrong. It's nice when people win stuff, but I think it's the moments of struggle um, and making the connections. Uh, and, you know, I know just, just going for, in, in my first season with the mountain bikers, I, I refer to them quite a lot because it, they they've really shaped a lot of what I do in, in recent years. But, you know, going down for a training session and, and Rach just said, can we go for a ride on our bikes? I was like, oh, okay. And we went for a ride for an hour around the and chatted and got loads of stuff sorted out. And that was the training session. And it was, so someone having the confidence and the trust in you to have that conversation that seemed like a throwaway conversation, but, you know, that, that's a bit of a highlight, you know, for me. Um, and and I guess just knowing I've been a small part in people's achievements, um, I guess being very lucky to be at major major championships and seeing people deliver, also being there when it's not gone quite so well as 
as well. Um, don't know. Yeah, no, that's lovely. That. I mean, it's, so a very, it's a very rambling answer, but... No, that's a nice one in the sense that someone demonstrating kind of unquestionable trust in you, that's feel, that feeling that you had, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think I can, I can think of one of the women's basketball players who, who ultimately didn't make the cut for um, London 2012. But we kind of almost went a little bit rogue with her training outside of the governing body to give her that one last chance to get called into camp and give it everything she could. And, and I kind of, she kind of sat slightly outside of the system and I supported her in my own time and she got pulled up and ultimately she didn't make it. But it was like, you kind of gave us the shot at trying it so that at least now I know I tried the best I could and wasn't quite good enough. Otherwise, you, it could have been very easy just to let her sort of drift and 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 always be questioning whether she would have made it or not. So I think things like that are as important, if not more important, than when you stood there going, yeah, we won the gold sort of thing. Yeah. Um, probably the human stories and the interactions sounds very schmaltzy but I think it's true definitely no that's that's it you don't you don't necessarily remember the what people said you made you remember how they made you feel in that sense yeah. you, the the actual cut and thrust the emotions don't you yeah uh, one one pet peeve about the industry you work in and if almost as if like you could wave a magic wand and, and remove it so I think it's it's becoming more and more prevalent and it's and it's really starting to put me off social media is it's increasingly a platform for people to moan about their lot or or salaries or opportunities and I've got no problem with someone moaning but offer some solutions. Um come up with a strategy, sit on a board and and, and try and change and influence don't just sit there and go, oh God, I can't believe there's another job advert for £20,000 a year. It's disgraceful. Da, 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 da. What is it and about salaries at the moment? Everyone's obsessed with it. I, interestingly, I, um, it, it was, this was raging a while ago and I went back and put in my salary and did a it, it, look at it, inflation. And my, my salary now would be £16,500. So, yeah, mine would be about the same. I think I started on ten and a half grand. Yeah. Which would have been about fifteen grand. Yeah. So. I'm like, and I'm not saying that what some of the current pay scales are are, are right and correct, but it's what I learned in GCSE uh, economics was supply and demand. Supply is massively outstripping demand. So guess what? That will potentially drive down the price. But equally, um, it's beholden upon us as a profession to demonstrate the worth. Yeah. So if you're yeah. only ever worth 15 grand, that's what you'll get paid. If you are yeah. worth and valued more and you bring more return on, on investment, your, yeah. and then they'll feel the threat of you leaving or someone else will come and um, snap you up. Yeah, absolutely. So I just think at the moment, if I could stop one thing, and it's not just about salaries, I just think it's, you can get a lot of negatrons on, on social media that will just <laughs> look and wait. They'll, they'll just, they'll just be, they're almost like lurking and waiting to bash someone, either an organisation for what they perceive to be a, an unfair salary or opportunity or an individual who's doing something slightly differently in the way that they're putting out information and oh well you're dumbing down 
and again, strength conditioning Bible is written for end user. It is not highbrow, deep, deep science, but I guarantee that little voice in my head was my peer group are going to absolutely batter me for referring to um, periodization as Russian dolls and, and dominoes. But, you know, it's not dumbing it down. It's making it accessible for someone that hasn't got a degree or postgraduate degree. So I think just don't, if you haven't got something nice to say, jog on (laughs) just like I haven't got time for it on my timeline just offer some solutions and and do something did you do the purge on Twitter you were going to do you were threatening yeah I was was, yeah I was because I was just so over it I'm like seriously you're just clogging up my timeline with negativity (laughs) like we know we know where we're at and why we're, we're here let's try and do something about it and I like jokes aside I think like what you're trying to do is commendable. I'm sure you're going to get battered by by certain sectors because he's charging for information. Same f- for me with with stuff that I've done. It's like, well, offer something different then. Go, be the person at university that puts on a module that, that yeah, does yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, it's like I'm trying to know, fill a gap just, with this online course because yeah, it's not yeah. been provided and it never has been. Yeah, despite the the, the messages. So I remember to like, a solution. Last last year, I I got into one of these sorts of. I tried not to, and I got into a bit of bit of a to and fro with with someone from academia because I I was saying people aren't prepared. I've seen graduates that have come and and have come out of university and they haven't been fit for purpose. They haven't been able to come into the job and be autonomous straight away. So it requires a lot of time and effort, and they have to be an intern because it's gonna they've not got what it takes, and they got very upset about that and. Well, okay, put a module on that that does it. It's a naive take. You know, this is this is industry informed perspectives because the, the end point of this is performance director, head coach, head of science and medicine saying uh, that person that you've sent over to me or that you said that was good enough is not good enough. Yeah, that's that's what I've been on the receiving end. That's informed and driven by this, and talking to a number of other industries particularly in engineering they are taking a completely different approach now and that they're cutting out the graduate so they're not employing graduate engineers they're employing people at 18 as apprentices it's been motivated by the government and then they're studying part-time so that in four years time that they will be a graduate engineer but that two-year period of time that we would call an intern postgraduate they've got their certificates they've got the job and then now we have to spend probably a couple of years training them up yeah yeah, they're putting that at 18 and 19 and 20 where perhaps when they're more open-minded and and that as a threat to the very essence of graduate education is very real i think and to turn a blind eye to it is is naive yeah so yeah i get yeah absolutely but so going back to your thing that i could get rid of like if, if you're gonna be on my social media feed make me laugh or inform me of something interesting all right or or show me some chocolate cake or ice cream those, those three criteria <laughs> if you're just gonna moan you can do one chocolate ice cream make you laugh or something interesting yeah all right we've got that 
Well, listen, Nick, it's been brilliant to catch up with you. And I know that we're really aligned and, that, and I, I, I'm always also conscious sometimes that I, I invite people on that I like to have a good chat with, which I guess is a good part of my CPD now is um, I don't get a CPD budget and connecting with people as we've talked about using the podcast as a vehicle to have a chat is, yeah. is brilliant. Yeah, I think it's if the one, one thing the podcast has given me is, is that. And it's great to spark off you and share ideas, but also whilst we're still aligned, I, I, I feel like actually we've, you've challenged a few of my views today and, and added to them and mo- moved them on. And that's been, um, that's yeah, been that's brilliant good. to catch up. That's good. We should get the Applied Sports Science Development Group back together for one last Where shebang. Where are they all now? It'd, maybe, it'd be interesting. Maybe we try and write a book, the next book uh, together. Maybe <laughs> we could try and have a little hatch on that. Do you think? That'd be a good idea. That'd be, that'd be a good book. That'd be a good book. <laughs> so having a rant. Uh, transcribe this rant. There you go. <laughs> no, but we'll offer solutions at the end of it. We can't, you can't just rant. You've got to offer solutions. Yeah, actually, we have had a few moans, but we've offered some solutions throughout the chat. So um, it's been brilliant. Yeah. Nick, thank you so much. Loved it. Steve, thank you very much for having me on. Absolute pleasure. So you can follow Nick on Twitter at Coach Nick G. He's also on Instagram on 0226. That's spelled Z E R 0226. You can also follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram under supporting champions and subscribe through our website for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes.